The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. It was born out of a, a conviction of your pastors, and, and that's this. Is we, we believe this is a really good book, like really good. And, and we have the audacity and maybe craziness to believe that, that everything in this book is valuable, uh, precious, like treasures for us. Uh, The whole thing, from beginning to end, from Genesis to maps, we believe it's all good. We believe that that, that Timothy wasn't lying when when he said, or that Paul wasn't lying when he said that that the whole scripture, from beginning to end, is is worthwhile and is good for teaching and and reproof and rebuke. And and it's what trains the men and women of God and makes them complete and whole. But we have a fear. We have a fear that a major portion of the scripture, of this book, where every word is truly good, is neglected. And so we want to turn our attention for 10 weeks on a portion that we feel is neglected, and that is the Pentateuch. Now, don't bail yet. If you don't know what the word Pentateuch means, it's all right. That's just a fancy way to say basically the first five books of the Bible. The first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you've read those portions, uh, you probably know this is where year-long Bible reading plans go to die. Right? You make it through Genesis, it's got a good story. Exodus, you dig Moses. Leviticus, you get weary, there's a lot of laws in there. Numbers, you're like, what's happening? There's a whole bunch of censuses, and I'm not reading this, right? And none of you make it to Deuteronomy, be honest. That's a shame. This is a great portion of the scriptures. And so we want to preach it. Because we know this, for God in his infinite wisdom and grace gave us the gift of the Pentateuch. So then we're going to spend the next 10 weeks walking through these books. Now, you're probably already doing the math, right? You know how we preach normally here, just verse by verse, straight through books of the Bible, and we know that's impossible in 10 weeks to get through these five books. And so instead of just walking um, verse by verse through each of the books, we're we're going to, because we would be here for your lifetime and your children's children's lifetime, we're we're going to kind of take a bird's eye view of, of all five of these books, and we want to point out two major themes that we see going through each of these five books. The grandeur of God and the grace of God. So each of these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we'll get two weeks on. The first one being on the grandeur of God, the bigness of God, and the second one being on the grace of God, the kindness of God in that particular book. Right? And here's our aim to this series. Our aim is that we would have a clear picture of the Father. That we would, with a clear picture and a clear understanding of what the Father has done in the, begin- the beginning of the scriptures that we would be propelled to worship. Because we believe that when we clearly see the bigness of God, right, his majesty, his sovereignty, his control, his might, his grandeur, that you will be compelled to worship him for who he is. But we also believe that when we see the grace of God, the kindness, the tenderness, the love, the care, that God shows in these books, you will be compelled to worship him for what he has done. So in, in grandeur, we seek to worship God for who he is. And in grace, we seek to worship God for what he has done. So with grandeur and grace, we want to sit in awe of our Father and worship him and truly worship him in truth and in spirit for who he is and what he has done. So let's start by praying for our series. God, we recognize right now that those two words, grand and grace, are infinitely true of you. Lord, for you are infinitely big, 
you are so much bigger than anything we can dream or even dare to imagine. Yeah, Lord, in your bigness, you still are gracious. And Lord, we know your grace manifests itself ultimately in the fact that you saw our helpless estate, our dead bodies in, in, in the grave, and you did something about it. Lord, you exchanged your robes of righteousness for our grave clothes. And for that, we worship you. So be with us as we embark on this journey, 10 weeks to the Pentateuch. We want, we want these five books, neglected by so many believers around the world, to speak to our hearts and our souls. We want to see your grandeur. We want to see your grace. And we want to truly worship you. We want to worship you for who you are and what you have done. So, Lord, remove any obstacles that might be in the way right now. Lord, Lord, any any sorrow that's in this room that could get in the way of us worshiping you for your grandeur, help us see the truth in it. Any skepticism that's in this room about your existence or your, your bigness in general, Lord, speak to it. Come against it. Whatever may be in this room that would take away from your bigness with gospel ferociousness, would you come against it? We love you and we want to worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So before we can jump into this series to take a fly over the book of Genesis and search for the grandeur of God, and to be honest, before we can jump really into any of these books of the Pentateuch, um, there is an excruciatingly important word that you must understand. If you don't understand this word, this sermon, the next sermon, and the, the, all the sermons in this series will not make sense. Let me take it further. If you don't understand this word, the Old Testament won't make sense. And if you don't understand this word, some of the Bible might make sense, but not nearly as much as when you understand this word, and that word is covenant. You must understand the word covenant for this series to have any effect on you or for your mind and your soul to be stirred for the goodness of God. So let me just take just a moment and talk about the word covenant. What we have here in the word covenant is really just a way that God relates to his people. Right? God relates to his people, especially in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we'll learn, through covenants. Now, covenant is basically an agreement between the two parties. It goes both ways, from God and from the people, right? It normally looks something like this. There's some kind of stipulation. God says, I'm going to do this for you. And you list off some things, right? Normally it's something like, I'll give you some land. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Normally children are involved. Some kind of seed relationship. You will have children. Your children will prosper in the land. Those are the things that God promises to his people. And in return, he asks for, ter- for specific covenantal faithfulness on their behalf. Right? I'll do this for you. And you follow me. Obey me. Trust me. Love me. Don't, don't, don't trust in the kings of other nations. Don't, tr- don't put your trust in the armies of other nations. Put your trust in me. Right? So that, this is kind of how covenants work. And here's what we're going to see. Right? This is extremely important for our series. Here's what we're going to see. The people of Israel are abysmally terrible at following the covenant. Unbelievably bad. It's almost as if the Old Testament is just a record book at how bad they are at covenantal faithfulness. At following those things that God has said. And on the contrast, we're going to see God go through painstaking um, measures to make sure that his end of the covenant is fulfilled. So that's basically how this whole thing is going to go. And how the Old Testament is going to go. 
Right? God is going to promise to establish his people and protect his people, and his people are going to do everything they can to make that untrue. But he's going to be faithful. And so when it comes to covenants, what we're going to see basically in this series is that when we're talking about the grandeur of God, we're going to be talking about the establishment of his people through covenant. Okay? Equate that in your mind. Grandeur is the establishment of his people through covenant. He's going to exercise his sovereignty to create and establish a people for himself. Okay, you with me? Then grace is really going to equal the protection and the preservation of that people, even in their wickedness and hard-heartedness. So grandeur is the establishment of a people, and grace is the preservation of a people. Right? And we know that people is the nation of Israel and ultimately the church. So that's what we have in this series, grandeur and grace. Everyone get covenants? You're all covenantal expertise now? Good, good. Okay, let's jump in. Genesis 1. We're, oh, just so you know, we're going to be flying, obviously. Genesis has 50 chapters in it, guys. I can't cover 50 chapters in, in you know, 45 minutes. So, so we're going to be, we're, here's how we're basically going to do it. So you have a road map. The book of Genesis, this isn't really in my notes, but just for you in your minds, we'll address seven of these eight realities. The book of Genesis is really broken down for you to kind of, be able to map yourself when you're reading the book of Genesis with four different events and four different people, okay? The events are creation, flood, um, or creation, fall, flood, and the, the establishment of the nations in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, right? So that, that's the events, and the four people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the patriarchs. So four events, four people, got it? That's basically how we're going to cover. We're going to leave off the Tower of Babel today, so we'll cover the first three and then all four people. So hold on, it's going to be a long day. Let's go fast. (laughs) Genesis 1, the grandeur of God in creation. If someone were to ask me to take them to any chapter in the Bible to show off the bigness of God, right? Even if I wasn't like stuck to the confines of Genesis, I'm more than likely going to go to this chapter, am I not? This is going to show us an awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping understanding of the bigness, the grandeur of God. The very first line, in the beginning, God created the world. Okay, just as a demonstration to you of how big God is, your mind, my mind, the minds of all of the greatest theologians to ever live can't comprehend this sentence. Literally the first sentence in the Bible. We We can't get at it. It's too big. For we know that, that uh, what we know about creation shows there, there's something beyond that we can't fully comprehend. Right? So you've probably heard the theological phrase ex nihilo. Right? It's a good phrase. Out of nothing is what that means. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. And it describes how God created the world. Out of nothing. Ex nihilo. There was nothing and then there was something. Right? So it's not like he had the building blocks there and he just put them together and here we are. It was out of nothing. Ex nihilo. He spoke it, and it was. Right? But we know that if that's true, nothing was there. Right? Nothing means nothing. So that means there was no space, there was no matter, there was no time, nothing. So he spoke even space, time, and matter into being. So just from this one sentence, we know not only did God create the world and how he created it in ex nihilo, but we know that he existed before space, Time and matter. All right, do you see where we're going? He's already bigger than you can dream. In the first line of the scriptures. 
So to prove God that should be worshipped because of his bigness and grandeur in the book of Genesis isn't a difficult task. I have the first sentence to prove it to you. After the first sentence, we already have a God bigger than our comprehension, than anyone's comprehension. Another thing that this is really important for us when when we look at um, the the book of Genesis and just something that stirred my soul as I was writing this sermon, we we see something else that's really magnificent, and that's the ease, not, not just the fact that he created, but the ease by which he created. Right, he speaks and it happens. He speaks and it happens. C.S. Lewis brilliantly um, writes in the Chronicles of Narnia, he, he, he depicts this as singing, that Aslan is singing the world into being, and I love that imagery. He speaks and it's there. Right? It's not difficult for him. And this shows us two really important things about the gospel, right? We want to be gospel people, and it's this. The, de- the declarations of the Lord are always effective, and that's good news for those of us who have been declared righteous. Because when he declares something, it is. Sun and moon, be, they are. Stars and ocean, be, they are. Sinner, be righteous, you are. God's declarative acts are always successful, and that's good news for those of us who have been declared righteous. It's also good news for us who have been declared righteous that he can create out of nothing because it wasn't like he had the building blocks to create the world and it's not like you had the building blocks needed for faith. He brought in you the same way he, he brought faith in you the same way he brought about stars in the night. That's out of nothing. It wasn't like you had some glimmer of hope, some, some little island of goodness in you. No, he spoke your faith into being out of nothing. The same ex nihilo power that brings stars into place is the same power that brings your salvation into reality. The gospel is evident in the scene of creation. And so when it comes to standing in awe of God for his grandeur in creation, there are a few better verses. I'm just going to read this. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read this. Psalm 33, 6-9. Listen to this. This is exactly what we're going after. Seeing how big God is in his acts and standing in awe because of it. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all of their host, he puts the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Hear this. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Don't let the doctrine of creation, right? Don't let that be a doctrine that you just breeze over. Meditate on it. Think about it. Allow it to sink into your bones and come out and worship. The God we pray to every single day, the God we sing to every Sunday, the God who rescued you by the gospel is the God who is right now holding you together and telling the stars where to go and the ocean where to stop. He is grand. Genesis 3. So that's creation. Genesis 3. I told you we're going to move fast. Genesis 3. The fall. God's grandeur in the fall. Now, I'll be spending a lot of time on the fall next week. You can probably see how the grace of God is going to really come through in chapter 3. But I don't want to miss the grandeur of God in the fall either. Because there's key elements we can't afford to miss. So so as you know, in Genesis 3, after the fall, God in his sovereignty gives curses to each of the parties represented, right? The man, the woman, and the serpent. He gives them all curses. And in the words of these curses echoes the grandeur of God. He says to the serpent that there will be enmity between the offspring, his offspring, and the offspring of the woman. The serpent will bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, but the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Okay? That's the curse that goes to the serpent. He's going to get his head crushed by 
the seed of the woman. And in this decree, we see God's grandeur. For in this decree, we have the first promise of the gospel, right? Everything, and I mean everything, in the rest of the Old Testament and much of the New Testament is building up to the, the fulfillment of this particular curse. Right? That the, the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It's building up to that. And when, when he does that, when the seed of this woman crushes the head of the serpent, he's not only going to take down the serpent, he's going to take down death and guilt and shame and sin and a whole lot of other garbage with him. So then, then hear this. Every one of the covenants that we will talk about, indeed every covenant, I'm not exaggerating, every covenant in the Bible will be fulfilled in the coming death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every one of them. Right, some of, you, some of you theological nerds know that I'm, I'm outing where I stand in terms of covenantalism. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of them. All of them. He is the ultimate way that God relates to the world. We see God's grandeur in the reality that he is about to start a people. Right? Through these covenants, he's going to start a people. The, the nation of Israel. These people will sway. They will wander far away from him. Yet for the rest of the story, he will be faithfully bringing them back to himself. There will be times when it looks like his people are crushed or devastated, right? Right? The the one seed who's remaining left goes to prison. Or they're in exile in Egypt. God doesn't show up for 400 years. There's going to be times where it looks like his covenant people are done for. As they're taken into exile by, by Assyria and Babylon in 722 B.C. and 586 B.C. It's going to look like they're devastated, but God's going to come through. They're going to be taken over by their enemies, taken captive, yet he faithfully preserves a remnant. And that word will prove to be very important shortly. Out of the line of this people, he'll preserve a remnant. And one day, a man, Jesus Christ, born of Mary, who will live perfectly without trace of stain or sin, he will be from this line. He will go to the cross and he will be hung by nails that he spoke into being. And in his death, he will conquer death. In his life, he will, in his life, he will give us life. In his resurrection, he will give us victory. He will crush death. He will crush the head of the serpent. Then he will rise. And it all starts here. And this cursing to a snake. So hating snakes is biblical. You can hate snakes, it's good. It all starts here. In the cursing of a snake. We see God's grandeur in the fall because we see the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's plan A for sin. And he commissioned it before eternity, and proclaimed it in a garden. And piece by piece, for the rest of this story, God sovereignly brings the plan of salvation about and into fruition, for he is grand. Genesis 6, the flood. God's grandeur in the flood. It's fairly easy to spot God's sovereignty and grandeur in this scene because he had the sovereignty and the ability to, to make waters cover the face of the earth. You don't have that ability. right? He's big. He controls the water. There's a reason Jesus isn't scared on the boat when there's a storm. He's big. Yet most people don't miss the evidence of God's grandeur in chapter 10. Just look at chapter 10 real quick, Genesis 10. Most people, when they think about the flood, they definitely think of chapter 6. And if they really know their Bible, they think even chapter 6 through 9 as the flood. But chapter 10 is evidence of God's grandeur. But most people are going to uh, skip over this in their Bible reading plan because it starts with these words. These are the generations from the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then you know what happens. It's just like a never-ending 
this person had this person, this person had this person, and that person lived this many years and did this thing, and they had this person, and that person lived this many years and did this thing, and they had this person. You know how it goes. And so we skip it. But we shouldn't. Because more than just a family tree, it's evidence of God's grandeur. Because what we see is in the flood, right? We know the wickedness that caused the flood, that every thought and intention of man was always evil all of the time. And we know that with the fact that the wages of sin are death. And so the flood shouldn't be a surprise to us. It's a direct consequence of sin. And somehow we've turned it into a cute kid's story. Do you realize that there are cute animals in a boat, but everyone else in the world is dying? Like, that's not fluffy cute. Like, drowning, dead. Everyone who's not on the boat drowns. But a remnant is kept alive. Noah and his family. And in that, in that remnant that stays alive, God is going to exercise his sovereignty in repopulating the world and bring about the line that will bring us David and eventually Jesus. Right? God's, God's grandeur and sovereignty, the train agrees with me, God's grandeur and sovereignty is seen by the fact that he can establish and preserve a people. Even when it looks like all hope is lost. Even when they deserve to die. Like in the flood. So, in this story, he saves Noah's family. Yet later in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel is captured by Assyria, right? 722, if you know your Bible history. And then by Babylon in 586, he spares some of his own people as a remnant. Showing that he is faithful to the fact that he promised to protect his people. Right? He, he's, we're going to see that he tells Abraham that his seed will be greater than the number of the stars. And so if the seed of Abraham ever dies, God doesn't fulfill his promises. And so he keeps a remnant of them alive. He protects them, showing off his grandeur and grace. So then, out of this meaning, seemingly meaningless family tree is a sign of the infinite grandeur and grace of God. And most importantly, out of this family tree, we get a man that you might be familiar with who's going to prove vital for our story. And this is, this is funny to me because I'm a loser who thinks stupid things are funny, but I actually had a typo in my notes. I said, most importantly, out of this family tree, we're going to get a man that you might be family with instead of familiar with. But that's actually true too, right? <laughs> Father Abraham had many sons, and, and you're one of them. So uh, theologically correct accidental typos just, I guess, make me happy. So there's that. But out of this line, we're going to get a man that you are familiar and family with. That's Abraham. Genesis 12 through 20, we get the story of Abraham. I just lost all of you as you're like, gosh, he's a nerd. (laughs) What a loser. (laughs) Don't worry, I think that about myself too. (laughs) Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred and your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went. So Abram went. So God calls Abram away from his homeland, away from his family, to a new country. And he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And he calls him to go. And Abraham goes. And with his going, we will see the birth of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Abraham is one of the most key figures in in all of Scripture. Not just our Pentateuch series, not just the Old Testament, but in all of Scripture. Abraham is very important for you to know, 
for you to get the story of Abraham is crucial. God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. And most of the rest of the Old Testament is a story of the fulfillment of that covenant. And indeed, even you sitting here today are a sign that that covenant has come to pass. So look at it. That's Genesis 15, verse 3. You thought we were going to be here forever. We're already at Genesis 15. Don't worry, there's only 50 chapters. Genesis 15, 3. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So, so Abraham is questioning the, 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 the faithfulness of God, right? Because God said, I will, I will give you, a, a nation will come from you. And he shows them, He's about to say that so great will this nation be that they will outnumber the stars. And Abraham's saying, wait, I don't have a son yet. We're going to find out in just a moment that Abraham's 99 years old at this point. 99. His wife is 100. Right? So he's like, probably going to have kids. Where are my kids? And he's saying, a member of my household is going to be my heir, one of his servants. And God says, no. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir one of Abraham's servants. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6 is unbelievably important for all of your theology. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So we have the Abrahamic covenant. right? God's going to expound on it in... in, uh, Genesis 17, when he says, basically, God promises three things to Abraham. He says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you a great uh, nation is going to come from you out of your seed, become a great nation. And, and hear me, just so I, this is an aside, I, I think I have a little bit of time to spare. Um, this is a good um, framework to think about when you're reading the Bible. These three realities show up over and over and over again. Seed, land, and relationship. Seed being like children, land being like a promised land, and relationship being the way that God relates to his people. Right? We see it in in just about every single covenant, but the most important covenant, the new covenant with Jesus, what happens? The Son of God, seed, dies, giving us the promised land of heaven and reestablishing the right relationship between us and God. Seed, land, relationship. So just look for that as, as you're reading the Bible. Um, it'll just, it, it's going to start coming alive to you. Like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere, right? He, the promised land, I will be your people, you'll be my God, and I'll give you children. So that's what he says to Abraham. So God makes a covenant, promises that Abraham will be the father of a nation so large it'll outnumber the stars. God also promises Abraham that his offspring will dwell in the land that God is going to give them and that he will be their God and they will be his people. Now, it's important to point out at this moment God just promised that he is going to, Abraham, that he is going to be the father of a great nation. So what we see for the rest of the Old Testament, again, is over and over and over and over, the nation of Israel basically getting inches away from totally messing this up. This is going to play into our series over and over again. As they stray away from God, getting inches away from eliminating the seed of Abraham and God showing up and sovereignly rescuing them. God made a promise the people don't believe that God's going to come through on that promise and they can't stay obedient to, the, to this covenant and come within inches of the, ruining the whole plan. So we even see this, right? 
before Abraham even has a son. So he just said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a nation that's bigger and has more people than all the stars of the sky. We're going to see over and over they stray from that, and it happens before he even gets a son. Because you know what happens right, right after this, right? Abraham is an old man. His wife is well beyond childbearing years, so they decide to take matters into their own hands. His wife has a miserable idea that if God promises them a child and it doesn't seem like it's going to happen, that Abraham should have a child with their servant, Hagar. So he does. And Ishmael is born. So God comes to Abraham, says all these promises, and says, I'm going to give you a son. A while goes by, there's no son. And so they say, God promised this. Let's do it on our own time. So Hagar shows up, and we have Ishmael. While this act, um, while this act, we have the first time where God's actions are directly, um, or God's promises are directly violated by His people. It's not going to be the last. In the Abrahamic covenant alone, before the first son is even born, the people of Israel are inches away from killing the promise because at that moment God should have said, "Fine, Abraham, I'm going to use someone else to bless. I'm going to use someone else to bring the greatest nation ever through their seed because you didn't trust me." That's not what happens, is it? God shows off his grandeur in opening the womb of a very old woman. And together they have their first son, Isaac. With the birth of Isaac, the rest of Genesis walks through three generations of Abraham's children. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. When we read these stories, it's easy to read them as as kind of isolated events. As kind of isolated, cute little stories, right? So you probably have some facts memorized about you know, Joseph's coat of many colors or, or Jacob wrestling with God or, 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 you know, the sacrifice of Isaac. You might have some of those stories in your mind, but hear me. We shouldn't just read them as individualized, cute stories. These are the founding fathers of the covenantal people, right? In the same way that the beginning of Genesis talked about the beginnings of the, the human race, now we're talking about the beginnings of the chosen race in these men, so keep in mind this covenantal arch, this, this, this storyline as we walk through these people. Don't just read them separate, right? The, the cute little story of Joseph, the cute little story of Jacob. No, they, they matter together. God is telling us a story in this narrative, and we can't lose that. He's starting in the nation of Israel from which David will come, from which Jesus will come, and for which you will be grafted into. Right? The story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph is your story if you're a Christian. So when we read these stories, three generations after Abraham, we're not jumping into the isolated narratives. We read about the the founding fathers of of the chosen people. And so we'll start with Isaac. Chapter 22, God's grandeur and the sacrifice of a son. One of the first scenes we see with Isaac is a bit counterintuitive, is it not? I I must say this, this, this chapter, chapter 22, and the few after are really dear to me. This is this was the chapter that I came to know the Lord while, while hearing. If you know my story, you know I don't come from a Christian family. By the providence of God, I'm the first Christian in my family. Um, and I was kind of tricked in high school and going to a church one day uh, because a, a guy was wearing a, a shirt of a band that I liked. This is a weird story, but, but I, I liked him, and we became friends, and he invited me over. I couldn't drive yet. Went to his house, and he told me, hey, by the way, we've got to go to church. And I said, what? Never been to church in my life. I, like... Not only is my family non-believers, but most of them are intelligent non-believers. So, so Thanksgiving dinner for me normally looks like an epistemological debate of, can we even know God? That's what it is normally like for me. 
And so I was kind of schooled in the reasons God didn't exist and why, even if he did, we shouldn't like him. And I went to church for the very first time, and this is what the pastor, the, the pastor opens up to you. Abraham being asked by God to kill his son. So I think to myself, Christians are even weirder than I thought. This is crazy. But in, this, but in that moment, in that night, in that sermon, God used his sovereignty and, and, and stole me. So God's, sacri- God's grandeur and the sacrifice of a son. The, this scene really does feel counterintuitive. And it should. Because, because don't, don't lose where we've been in the story. Don't, don't lose where we've been. God shows up to Abraham, says, leave your father, leave your mother, leave your country, and go to this new country. In this new country, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham doesn't believe him, right? At first he believes him, but then, he, then him and his wife start doubting. So they take matters into their own hands, and they have Ishmael, right? But that wasn't good. And so now they have, God has to deal with him, and then they have Isaac. And so we finally are at the point in chapter 22 where God is finally right about what will happen with Abraham. He has a son. And the first scene we have is God asking Abraham to kill him. I guess that doesn't make sense. There's tension. And at this moment, you're supposed to feel that tension as a reader. After all of this, God's promise, Abraham's obedience with Hagar, God's faithfulness with delivering Isaac, the start of the promised nation, is this how it's going to end? Abraham killing his own son? Abraham sacrificing the very evidence of God's faithfulness? Yet, God stops Abraham and provides a ram from the bushes for the sacrifice instead. And this moment in the story is really important because think about this. When God told Abraham that he was going to have a son, he didn't, Abraham didn't believe God. And he had a son with Hagar instead. So he didn't have faith that the promise would go forward. Now that Abraham finally has that son and Isaac, and God says sacrifice him, Abraham is doing the opposite of what he did before. He believes God. And so in in the mind of Abraham, the story can feel weird if you don't have this covenantal storyline in your mind. Because Abraham knows God's going to be faithful to the covenant. Right? And we see when he's actually walking uh, up to this, uh, where they're going to sacrifice Isaac with with his wife. And he says, uh, hold, say here, uh, me and the boy will come back. Abraham says that. He believes something's going to happen. Right? He might have to kill his son, but God's going, to be, God's going to be faithful to the covenant, and he'll bring him back, or he'll provide a new one, or something will happen. And Abraham believes that God's going to come through on his covenant. So we have a different Abraham here than we do with Hagar. That's important. So then Isaac lives because of the grace and grandeur of God, and the covenant promise of a nation goes on. A few chapters after the scene, Isaac has a son, two sons actually, Jacob and Esau. Chapter 32, God's grandeur and the creation of Israel. Now, out of all the four, out of all the four founding men of, of our uh, faith and nation of, of Israel and the, the church, ultimately, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Jacob is who I am very sadly choosing to not spend a lot of time on. I just want to point your attention to one really interesting chapter, and that's chapter 32. Um, I'm just going to just, just read it. Chapter 32 of Genesis, verse 22. I can get there. This is another curse. I'm not growing up a Christian. I didn't have a wana, so you guys are all faster than me at this. Your Bible drills did you well. 32, 22. I'll get there sometime. Here we go. 
this is, this is a, I'm just going to be honest. We don't, we don't know what this totally means. The same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of, I'm in the wrong chapter, aren't I? Okay, okay, okay. Let me keep going here. Okay, going down. Um, okay, uh, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me, which is what you say to a man you're wrestling. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God, with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God's face. I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. What? (laughs) Yeah, so we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know if literally Jacob is wrestling with God himself. That's what the text seems to indicate. Or if Jacob is wrestling with um, a representative of God, like, a, like an angel of the Lord, which we, we see people treat as God many times. Um, and, but what we, what we do have here is the changing of Jacob's name and then the, the, the birth of the nation of Israel. So this is the first time you're going to see the word Israel. And from here, you're going to see it all over. Right? So when you, see, when you see Israel, you know when they're referring to a person, they're referring to Jacob. So the birth of a nation is formed. Five chapters later, we have a figure that actually gets the most chapter coverage in all of Genesis, chapter 37. So out of all the figures we've talked about, this guy's talked about for the longest period of chapters in Genesis. He gets 37 through 50. The rest of Genesis is about this one guy. His name is Joseph. And and I would argue that out of all the men that we've covered, the grandeur of God is most evident in this man's life, Joseph. It is like undeniably there. So, so what I want to do is I want to actually just tell you the story of Joseph. I'll, I'll fly through it. Don't worry. And I just want you to think about that. Think about how God is at work in the life, in the life of, the life, of Joseph. It, it, it's crazy. It, his story starts uh, with him 17 years old. Right? So we have a 17-year-old Joseph. His father's favorite son, because the scripture says that God gave... Um, him, Joseph, whenever he was in his old age. So the father favors, uh, Jacob favors his son, Joseph, out of all of his other sons. And we learn quickly in Joseph's story that he's the owner of a particular coat, a coat of many colors that his father made for him. One day early on in his story, he comes to his brothers and he tells his brothers that he has a dream. And in his dream, all of the brothers are bowing down to him. Right? This is what every younger brother tells all of their older siblings. <laughs> They're all bowing down for him, and they hate this dream. And in fact, it says they want to kill him over it. So soon after, one day, Joseph is sent to get word from his brothers to come back to his father because they were farming, and Joseph's dad wanted an update on how things were going. So Joseph went to find his brothers. It turns out they were far away. And when they saw, the, when, they saw when Joseph's brothers saw Joseph coming to them, they started plotting against him of how they could kill him. Right? So he had his coat of many colors on. They tore it off of him along with the rest of his robes, and they sought to kill him. While they were seeking to kill him, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming by, and they said, wait, we could actually make money off of him. So instead of killing him, let's sell him into slavery. 
So they had already thrown him into a pit to die, but they, they drag him out so they can sell him as a slave. And so they do. So Joseph ends up being sold into slavery and is sold to a man named Potiphar in Egypt. Well, Joseph is now a slave in Egypt. Right? Keep in mind the grandeur of God and God's hand in this story. He's now a slave in Egypt under the man Potiphar. Yet the story takes an interesting turn because it says Joseph did really, really well under Potiphar. Like really well. It said, actually the text says that everything Joseph touched was blessed. So Potiphar loves this slave. Right? And Potiphar actually makes him um, the ruler over everything in his house. And then it takes another interesting turn because Potiphar's life, wife likes the way that Joseph looks. And so she goes after him multiple times, tries to get him to lay with her. But he doesn't. Joseph refuses as he flees. He runs to the street in a public place so, no one can, so everyone can see what was happening. And when the guards show up, Potiphar's wife says, he was coming on to me. He was trying to get me to lay with him. Potiphar believes his wife, and Joseph is thrown into jail. Right? So remember, this is the seed of Abraham, now in jail. Yet, even in prison, the Lord was with Joseph, for he found favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph was put in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison, and everything he did succeeded, according to the Scripture. At the same time that all of this was happening, two men who worked for Pharaoh in Egypt commit a crime against Pharaoh. Those two men were basically his baker and his cupbearer. And so they're thrown into prison, the same prison that Joseph is in. So Joseph is now in prison with Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's cupbearer. And they both have dreams. Joseph, unlike anyone else in the prison, is able to interpret those dreams. And one of them, the cupbearer, really likes his interpretation because Joseph interprets it that the cupbearer will get his job back with Pharaoh. Both of the men eventually get released from prison, and uh, yet they forget Joseph. The scripture says they're released and forget Joseph. So, so in this story, in, in Joseph's story, you have this up and down. Joseph is the favorite son of his father, yet his brothers want to kill him. And then it goes even deeper. He was thrown into a pit, and he was sold into slavery. But he was bought by a man who loved him, Potiphar. But then Potiphar's wife happened, so he's put into prison. But the prisoner loves him, and he, he gets to interpret dreams, and everyone loves him for it. But they get out, and they forget him. So it's just up and down and up and down and up and down of Joseph. So, so they forget him. And this, there, there's a line in the scriptures here that I think is, is really important. It says, Joseph was in prison for two years. Two years. The seed of God, the line of Abraham, the promised one, the beginning of the covenant, here, representing this one man, Joseph, almost died, sold into slavery, being wrongly judged from Potiphar's wife, in prison for years. Yet God, in his grandeur, is faithful to his people. Eventually, Pharaoh has a dream that he once interpreted. And the cupbearer finally remembers what Joseph had, had done while they were in prison together. So he told Pharaoh and the rest of the leaders to, to get Joseph and bring him to Pharaoh. So that's what happens. And Joseph is able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh saw that no one in the land compared to Joseph. So the scripture says that Pharaoh says to Joseph this. This is exact, this is quote here. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. Okay. So now Joseph, once a son, once left for dead in a pit, once a slave, once a prisoner, is now second in command in the greatest nation in the world, Egypt, under Pharaoh. So Joseph reigns over all of Egypt for years. 
And then a famine comes onto the land. And Egypt is the only country in the land that has grain, according to the scripture. The Bible says that the whole earth came to Joseph and to Egypt to buy grain, for they were the only one that had any left. Along with those who came to Egypt to buy grain were the brothers of Joseph that sold him into slavery to begin with. Joseph recognizes his brothers that sold him into slavery as they approached the land. And there, there's a back and forth between the brothers, which Joseph, it's just a fascinating story to read. It feels like, like daytime television. You're like, oh my gosh, what is he going to do to his brothers? <laughs> they don't know it's him, but he knows it's them. It's just, it's fascinating. So Joseph tests them in chapter 25, right, in chapters basically 40, 42 to 45. But in chapter 45, he reveals to them that he is Joseph. They bow before him just like his dream predicted because they were terrified for their lives that he was going to take revenge on them and kill them. But Joseph says something that is vital for us to understand the grandeur of God and the story of Genesis and the entire establishment of his people. Listen to what Joseph says as he reveals himself to his brothers. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Don't miss this. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for many survivors. And he goes on to remind them of the grandeur and sovereign plan of God in the last chapter when he says beautifully, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. So the answer to the question, who sent Joseph to Egypt, his brothers or God, is yes, both. They both sent him to Egypt, which again is another time in which the covenant made to Abraham should have failed. It should have failed here. The chosen one, Jacob, who almost was killed, sent into slavery, put into prison because of the, brothers of, because of the sin of his brothers, yet God in his grandeur was faithful to promise was faithful to the promise that he made to Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, and protected that seed. Whether when it's close to death or in prison or a slave or whatever it may be, he protected that seed because God is grand. So then, what does that mean for you today? This story, these four events, these four people, what does it mean for you today? What hope is there in the Christian life today because of this story? Well, more than you might think, actually. We talked at the beginning of this text that God made a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation. And indeed, hear me, just like Abraham was the, a part of the covenant people, so are you. Just like Abraham was a part of the covenant people, so are you. For this seed of Abraham continues. It goes all throughout the Old Testament. Even though it tries to, to get rid of what God had planned, God saves it over and over and over. And the seed continues. Through slavery in Egypt, which we'll see soon, through the exile, through the judges, through the kings, through the writings, through the poems, through the prophets. And this line gives way to a man named Jesus Christ. This man makes it possible for people like you and me, Gentiles, those who are outside of that covenant family, Israel, the Jewish people, to join in this line. For he comes and he lives a perfect life, dies a traitor's death, and has a victorious resurrection as the payment for your sin. And the scripture doesn't stop there. 
The scripture tells us that if, if you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we are grafted into the family of Abraham. So when God promised Abraham a family greater than the number of stars, he had in mind the church and numbered among them because the grandeur and grace of our Father is you. You're numbered, and that number that's greater than the stars. All of this should cause utter worship in you. The second thing you need to hear from this story, this sermon, is that God has you. Like, has you. And, and it's a shame to me that there's, there's many people in here, myself included, that don't feel the freedom of what it's like to be caught in the web of God's grace. Like he has you. It's, it's over. In the best way possible, the war is over. You, you don't have to walk around every corner terrified. You don't have to tiptoe your way through the Christian life afraid that you might lose what God has purchased for you. You don't have to, Christian. Your salvation is kept in the God whose grand hand hung the stars, who controls floods, who was faithful to his people, though they weren't faithful to him. He has you. The grandeur of God should compel you to worship him because he's big, but it also should compel you to worship him because of your security. Because your security is found in Him. So, we come to worship Him. From the beginning, He has been executed the greatest plan to ever be conceived. And in His grandeur, He saw fit to bring you and I in on it. Don't miss this. God in His grandeur is worthy of our adoration and worship. Let's pray. God, as we fly through a 50-chapter story, we're compelled to see you as marvelous. As we bring a close to sermon number one on Genesis, on, on your bigness, may that reality just sink into our hearts that you are truly big. And may it speak volumes to the, to the gospel that the magnificent, grand God took on flesh and became a baby. That the one who was before time and space and matter came in an actual time with confined by space, confined by the matter of a skin of a newborn. As we talk about your grandeur, may the gospel come alive. You are big and we are not. You are God and we are not. You are faithful and we are not. We worship you. We're desperate in need of you. So be with us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.